continuing in our sermon series, Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People. Uh, We're going to be continuing in Psalm 119, as we have been for the last uh, few weeks, and we've got one more Sunday in Psalm 119. Well, when you hear the phrases, social gospel, or social justice, or pursuing justice, what are your thoughts? What immediately comes to mind? Some of you are like, all right, let's get into it. And some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, I feel a little uncomfortable here, right? These are hot topic issues and buzzwords for sure. Uh, But I want to share with you a few uh, points of data, if you can see this. It didn't show up as well as I wanted to, but uh, there's a pastor and political scientist whose uh, name is Ryan Berg, and he or Berg, uh, and he does a ton of uh, scholarly work around uh, views of religion in the U.S. And one of the sections uh, I found this week was his uh, this uh, chart that shows views of the social gospel among Christian groups. So this is really fascinating around what these questions sort of elicit in people, and so it's broken down in these. Uh, Sections of non-white evangelical, white evangelical, non-white Catholic, non-evangelical, and white Catholic. And so there's a couple of different things here. Addressing social issues distracts people from achieving salvation. Pretty low across the board. Uh, Less than 20% of each person uh, or of each group. Building the kingdom of God on earth is only about bringing people to Christ, not changing social structures. Non-white evangelical, 55%. White evangelical, 53%. Non-white Catholic, 26%. Non-evangelical, 26%. And white Catholic, 32%. A lot lower on uh, Catholic uh, thought. Uh, There's a lot, a rich history of Catholic social uh, um, theological thinking around social issues uh, from Catholics. And so I think that that makes sense there. Uh, Failure to confront social unfairness is a sin. This is a really, I'm not giving any sort of commentary around these things. I'm just trying to get us to think a little bit, all right? We'll, we'll get into the text here in a second. But uh, white evangelical, 30% on that one. Non-white evangelical, 45%. Uh, non-evangelical, 49%. So definitely a big uh, piece of this. Uh, God is more concerned about individual morality than social inequalities. This is the, probably the biggest disparity. Uh, white evangelical, say, 59% of that uh, says that God is more concerned about individual morality than social inequalities. Uh, and then significantly higher than non-white evangelical, non-white Catholic, non-evangelical, and white Catholic. Uh, social justice is at the heart of the gospel. So this is kind of the flip answer, Right. Uh, and so another big disparity with white evangelical at the lowest end of this and non-white evangelical at the highest, at six, or actually what, non-white Catholic at the highest at 62%. But what's really interesting is there's this one question here. God instructs us to protect the poor. Everyone has a really high answer on this, right? Everyone's uh, over 70% on this one. There's a very well understanding within the Christian faith across the board that God tells us to care about the poor. But then there's a whole bunch of like, how do we do that? How do we do that? Is is social justice at at the heart of the gospel? Is it a, a sin to fail to confront social unfairness? All of these issues, right, surrounding how we actually do this. 
And so what we want to do this morning is actually look at what God's Word has to say about our pursuit of justice. Hey, Chris, can you uh, click back on there? Something got... Oh, there we go. Look at that. It works. All right. So... What we want to do this morning is actually look at, we talk a lot about justice here at the church. But what does God's Word tell us about this? So we're looking at Psalm 119, which is all about God's Word, as we've been talking about. And so we're going to hit on this little section that talks about justice. So, Psalm 119, we're going to start in verse 137 and read this little stanza of Psalm 119. O Lord, you are righteous. And your regulations are fair. Your laws are perfect and completely trustworthy. I, have, I am overwhelmed with indignation, for my enemies have disregarded your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. That is why I love them so much. I am insignificant and despised, but I don't forget your commandments. Your justice is eternal, and your instructions are perfectly true. As pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. Your laws are always right. Help me to understand them so I may live. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what does it mean for us to pursue biblical social justice? In order to do this, we need three things. First, we need a righteous anger. Second, we need a righteous trust. And third, we need a righteous insignificance. Okay? So we're going to be looking at these three things. Righteous anger, righteous trust, and righteous insignificance. But in order for us to get there, what, what, what do we mean by biblical social justice? Depending on where you're at and what people you listen to in podcasts or different things or what books you read, that phrase is either like, yep, or like, this is really scary. Biblical social justice. It's not a scary phrase. We don't need to be afraid of it. So there are two words in Hebrew that come together often in the Scriptures. And they are righteousness and justice. Righteousness is this display of God's moral beauty and rightness. It is connected to God's character. And justice is the social display of those things. It's what God's righteousness looks like played out in the world. And when those two phrases are put together, uh, theologian Christopher Wright says this, possibly the nearest English expression to the double word phrase would be social justice. That when these two words are put together in the Hebrew Bible, it is just talking about social justice. It is God's righteousness on display in the world among image bearers. Image bearers of God experiencing righteous and thriving care. It is, as we're going to see, really public holiness. We're a love of neighbor. So let me offer a definition of our biblical social justice, which is justice as determined by Jesus for the benefit of all people, which is just social, right? Biblical social justice is justice as determined by Jesus for the benefit of all people. Now, if we're going to pursue that together as a church, we need to start with righteous anger. Psalm 119, in verse 139, says this, I am overwhelmed with indignation, for my enemies have disregarded your words. Some translations say, my zeal consumes me. 
There's two parts to this. The psalmist says he's overwhelmed with indignation, and it's because his enemies have disregarded your words. When it comes to pursuing biblical social justice, we actually need both of these things. Injustice should bother us. Because it bothers God. Injustice should bother us because it bothers God. Sometimes I think we have this concern about emotional investment in things and that we need to be rational and objective. That certainly has its place. But according to the psalmist, so does righteous anger, lament, being overwhelmed with indignation and consumed by zeal. Being overwhelmed with indignation. This is a consuming zeal at the injustice of the world. That we should feel indignation. What should we feel indignation at, though? Because the reality is, we are living in a culture that could be defined by many things, but one of those could be rage. We just like to rage about everything. Like, everything will make us angry, right? And so we like to rage about everything. But the psalmist is overwhelmed with indignation, for my enemies have disregarded your words. Now, that could mean a lot of things, right? We've talked about how Psalm 119 is really encompassing all of God's word. So that could mean a lot of things. But the immediate context of this passage says, You, O Lord, are righteous, and your regulations are fair. Your justice is eternal. Your instructions are perfectly true. The reality is, the psalmist is saying, my enemies have disregarded justice. My enemies have disregarded justice, and so we are to be righteous like God and respond in the same way that God does. Well, God, in His Word, He responds with righteous indignation at injustice. Amos 5 says this. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Amos to the people of God. He says, I hate all your pretense, all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Amos says just before this said, you are hoping, you people of God are hoping for the day of the Lord, but it won't go well for you because you are full of injustice. You're worshiping God but you're actually ignoring everything he tells you to do. I've preached on this passage before, but the reality is that the barometer towards God's accepting of our worship is how we treat our neighbors. This is shown throughout all of the Scriptures that God has a righteous anger for injustice. He will not accept your noisy hymns. Now Jesus says basically the same thing. Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! 
For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law of justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Jesus is a master at using words to showcase the hypocrisy of his opponents. He says, you are so careful to follow every single tiny regulation that has nothing to do with loving your neighbor. It actually shows a couple of things related to even some of those charts we were looking at, right? This idea of individual morality versus social injustice. That what Jesus is saying is you're missing the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law is that you would represent God in the world. That you would showcase His righteousness in the world by loving your neighbor. So we need to have a righteous anger like the Lord does, like Jesus does, like we see in Amos and like in the psalmist. But it's a righteous anger founded on God's Word and His righteousness. Sometimes we need, to be, we need to be aware that sometimes we jump on something with righteous anger simply because it's a hot topic or a cultural trend. Now, sometimes hot topics and cultural trends line up with exactly what the Bible would tell us to care about. But sometimes it doesn't. Which is why we actually need to know God's Word. We need to know the righteous character of God. Is this something that when we see some injustice, we should be angry about? Is our social justice justice as determined by social forces? Or is it justice as determined by Jesus for the benefit of all people? That is, justice for the social, not justice determined by the social. Now, here's the thing. We have lots of tools within the Christian faith to determine these things. We don't have to be looking only to our culture to determine what is unjust in the world. We have lots of tools within the Scriptures to show us God's righteous character. The Ten Commandments as articulated in the Scriptures and flushed out throughout the Scriptures, showcase to us all of these things. And in particular, two commandments that highlight this reality would be the Sixth and the Eighth Commandment. Do not murder and do not uh, steal. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment, do not murder, are all manner of careful efforts and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of anyone's life. Now, some of these, as I walk through this 6th and 8th commandment, some of these things are going to sound like, well, sounds a little bit liberal there. What are you saying there? Everything I'm reading actually is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. The Westminster Divines, they knew what they were talking about. 
Our standards as a church, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism, the Larger Catechism has this extensive section on the law where it goes through each of the Ten Commandments and it says this is what the commandment is, this is what it requires, and this is what it, uh, what, uh, what it tells you you can't do. It, these are sins forbidden. So there's like a positive part of the command and a negative part of the command. And it is brutal in showcasing how creative we are as people to come up with sinful ways to harm one another. It goes on in the sixth commandment to include this. It says, the just defense of lives against violence. This is what's required by the sixth, or yeah, the sixth commandment. Patiently bearing the hand of God with quietness of mind and cheerfulness of spirit. Sober use of food, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations. You're like, wait a second, I thought this was about not murdering people. Yeah. You have to be proactive in caring about how you're interacting in the world to avoid situations in which we cause violence to one another. Charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. Peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. Forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing and forgiving of injuries, and returning good for evil. And comforting and supporting the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocents. What are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? All taking away of the life of ourselves or of others, except in cases of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life. So, so the Westminster Standards are saying, if we are not proactively looking to defend the life of the vulnerable among us, we're breaking the Sixth Commandment. That it's required that the church show up. Not just say, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything means you broke the commandment, right? Because it is required that we would actually show up. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, and desire for revenge. All excessive passions and distracting cares. Immoderate use of food, drink, labor, and recreation. Provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else lead, tends to the destruction of the life of anyone. It's like the catch-all phrase there, right? All of that's forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. So many of the issues that we are facing as a culture, as a city, are, are right there, present. Now let's add to it the Eighth Commandment, do not steal. Watch out. The Westminster Divines are coming for us and for our economic thoughts around stealing. Truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between people. This is what's required. Paying everyone what they are due. Not paying people well is breaking the Eighth Commandment. Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners of it. Reparations. Commanded by the Eighth Commandment. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Moderation 
in our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. A prudent care and effort to get, keep, use, and dispose those things which are necessary and convenient for our physical needs and suitable to our condition. The Westminster Confession is saying, or the Westminster Larger Catechism is saying, part of obeying the Eighth Commandment is working hard to make sure you are secure yourself so that you're in a position to help others. Lawful calling and a diligence in it. Frugality. Avoiding unnecessary lawsuits, pledges of security, or other similar legal entanglements. And an effort by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward state of others as much as our own. Westminster Standards are saying that if you care only about your financial well-being, you're breaking the Eighth Commandment. Again, this is not a communist manifesto. This is the Westminster Standards, guys. It is brutal in the way in which we have tended to think that these things are so separated from our following of Jesus. So connected. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Theft, robbery, kidnapping, and slave-catching and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, and moving the marks of property boundaries, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts or matters of trust, oppression, extortion, taking advantage of the poor by charging them interest on loans, bribery, harassing lawsuits, unjust detainments, and unjust removal of people from their land. Historically, we break the Eighth Commandment quite a bit as Christians in this land. Hoarding commodities to enhance the price. Price gouging. Breaking the Eighth Commandment. Unlawful callings. And, any, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or enriching ourselves. This right here is enough just exposing two commandments that God gave us in the Ten Commandments is enough to expose a lot of righteous anger at the injustice surrounding us. We can translate this to current moments just even in our city. Bad landlords should make us righteously angry. In our work in the Mercy Ministry, Chris and I have just banged our heads against the wall many times because of bad, unjust landlords. Political corruption, payday loans, taking advantage of the poor and vulnerable, this should make us angry. It's expensive to be poor in this country and in this city. And there are folks gaining, profiting off of the poor in our city and in our country. And that should make us righteously angry. The reality is, we as the church are not angry enough. Because it doesn't affect me. 
So therefore, I can remove my own connection to it. And yet, many, the poor among us in our city and in our country, are following Jesus, which means that affects your body as much as it affects you right now. According to Paul, one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Also, if we just basically care only about our own financial benefit or the bottom line of our own situation, that greed is injustice. Not to mention all the other things that we, have, we face. Police brutality, gun violence, the crisis when it comes to suicide, Unjust wars all over the place. Mistreatment of refugees and people seeking asylum. Human trafficking. Abortion. All of these things should fill us with some righteous anger at the unjust taking of life. The fact that we are not proactively preventing the unjust taking of life. That we do nothing. That should fill us with righteous anger. We should be indignant because our enemies refuse to obey God's law. Now, how do we move from righteous anger to righteous action? Because we don't want to just stay in righteous anger we want to move towards righteous anger. And the path from righteous anger to righteous action is righteous trust. Righteous trust. Your justice is eternal and your instructions are perfectly true. As pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. You see, the path to righteous action from righteous anger is righteous trust. And the path to righteous trust in God's justice is lament. Lament. Your justice is eternal and your instructions are perfectly true. As pressure bears down on me, I find joy in your commands. You see, the psalmist says, I'm indignant. I'm overwhelmed with righteous anger when I look around and see injustice and that stress and pressure bear down on me because I can't handle it. If any of you can handle the list we just walked through, go for it. But I can't. It's overwhelming. You can pick any one of those things and find injustice everywhere. Just walk out this door and go around our city and you would see all of those things being broken. Sixth and eighth commandment broken all over the place. And that's just two of them. We're overwhelmed by the injustice. One of the biggest challenges for us today in entering into conversations around justice is we know more than any people ever in history, about things happening all around the world. Used to be that injustice was the thing that you saw only down the street because you didn't know what was happening on the other side of the world. We see both. 
it's overwhelming. And then we get paralyzed to do nothing. And I want to free us from that. I want to free us from being paralyzed to do nothing by entering into lament. There are some injustices that the only thing you can do is lament. We want to be about righteous action. Absolutely. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that. But the way in which we do that is by trusting that God's justice is eternal. That the arc of history bends towards justice, as MLK said. And yet, it's a long arc. It's a really long arc, right? The standard uh, um, vision of salvation throughout the Scriptures is the Exodus. Right? This is like the, the big high point of the Old Testament, and it's pushed forward into the New Testament that Jesus is giving a new Exodus. And we went through the book of Exodus, right? How long were the people of Israel enslaved? 400 years. God's justice is long. And we need to trust that His justice is eternal and good. And when His justice is eternal and good and we don't see it in the current moment, that dissonance, we can either run away from God or we can run to God with our lament. Which is just complaining about the things that are happening, just not complaining to other people, just complaining to God. That's what lament is. All of the complaining that we do to one another, just turn it to God and it's lament. It's like a really... This is like a really easy thing, guys. We're, we're, we're not, it's not these like special words that you got to come up with and all this thing. It's just simply taking our righteous anger and directing it to the Lord who is in control of all things and lamenting that reality. The reality is there are lots of situations. Right now, maybe the, the, the thing that you think about a lot is war in the Middle East. And how incredibly complicated that situation is, historically and currently. And the injustice that happens on all sides of that issue. And it's really easy to jump in and say, this one's right, this one's wrong, let's run this way. But there's just injustice everywhere. There are image bearers suffering. What can you do about that right now? You can lament and you can pray. And there's lots of other little steps that we can take, right? For sure, for sure. But we get overwhelmed to get to that place in which God will show us what role we play in it by just simply saying, man, that's so much, I can't do anything. And so we fail to lament and we fail to pray. But we can lament and we can pray. We need to trust that God is working. We need to lament. What I think we need in getting to this righteous trust is some time to slow down from our righteous anger to our righteous action. The way we do this is through our righteous trust and our laments. Okay. I'm going to hit the whiteboard here, guys. I think. Here's my pen. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we want to get to righteous action, right? That's what we said. We want to display God's righteousness in the world. And we start by seeing 
God's righteousness and then seeing the way the world works and having righteous anger, right? We are righteously anger, angry about what is happening in the world and seeing that injustice. Well, often what we try and do is go straight from righteous anger to righteous action. Typically, when you try to go straight from righteous anger to righteous action, what happens is righteous goes away and you go from anger to action. We just move so quickly towards this thing and actually don't represent the righteousness of God. So we don't want to do that. So if we don't want to do that, what do we need? Well, we need righteous trust. We need to know that God is in control. We need to know that He knows what's happening in the world. So we need to move first to righteous anger, or from righteous anger to righteous trust, and that takes lament, as we said. And then we need to move from righteous trust to righteous action. But I think what we need in here is humility. The way from righteous trust to righteous action is humility. And the way to humility is righteous insignificance. I'd write that down for you, but I'll spell it wrong, so I'm not going to. So we're just going to go back here. Because I won't, I won't spell that right. So you guys, can, you guys can find that word on your own. I am insignificant and despised, but I don't forget your commandments. Okay. I'm tracking with you, Pastor. I got it. Injustice is bad, and I am upset by it. You got me all ruined my lunch. I'm real mad about all this injustice in the world. We need action. Let's trust God and let's go get it. Well, hold up for a second. Social justice. Biblical social justice is the justice for the social, but not as for the social as in the good of others. But sometimes when we use social justice, it's actually for the good of ourselves in getting social clout. If your pursuit of social justice is more about your social status and being on the right side of things, then maybe you don't actually care about justice. This is something that we actually need to wrestle with. Sometimes, being about justice is this mark for us that we get it. We're the ones that get it right. Those other folks get it all wrong. We're the ones that get it right. Friends, if you want to be about real justice work, get used to saying this. I am insignificant and despised, but I don't forget your commandments. Real justice work is insignificant. Because real justice work is complicated, and to solve problems, it takes a thousand things. But, as I've said many times, no one wins political office on a campaign that says, I am proposing a thousand small things. Please vote for me. But that's what it takes to solve things. 
Because you solve one thing with a big splash and it creates ten other problems, right? It takes a thousand little things to solve any, in, any significant injustice. And that's complicated. Which means, if you want to be committed to real justice for real people made in God's image, be ready to be insignificant and despised. John the Baptist was a prophet. And he had the righteous anger of God. When John shows up on the scene, he says this, the crowds came to John for baptism. He said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's like a great evangelism strategy, right? Like, this is definitely the attractional model. People come in, wait, who warned you to come here? Why are you here? Who warned you to come flee from wrath? Like, John, chill out, man. They're here. But why does he say that? He says, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Wow. John is like fiery, right? He's like, you guys, lean on this idea of repentance, but you don't understand what repentance is. It means a real change. That you've repented. That you've said all of these things that we walked through in the 6th and 8th commandment. Yes, those are sins, and I've repented of them. Meaning I'm seeking forgiveness for them, and I'm not going to keep pursuing them. I'm going to keep fruits from repentance. So the crowd say, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked the teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do, asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Wow. Right? John's like, He's just laying out the law for him. Like, you want to know what you should do to showcase that you're actually repenting of your sins? Pursue justice. Pursue justice. Now, sometimes when we hear about injustice, I don't know about you guys, but my temptation always is to be like John and be a prophet who calls out all the injustice and sin. I love that. I'm like, John, get it, man. Come on. But what does John say? He, speaking of Jesus, must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Do you know what happened to John? John kept saying this stuff over and over again. Then he goes to a part, uh, then, then there's a party at Herod's palace, and he's trying to impress all of his friends and so he's like ask his daughter what, what ask for anything and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom so she asked her mom what should we ask for and he says the head of John the Baptist so John is in jail they go chop off his head and serve it the party show it up 
John the prophet said, Jesus must become greater and greater. I must become lesser and lesser. He continued to call out injustice, and then he got killed. Being really about justice is not a trendy thing. It's not about being, getting retweeted on Twitter. It's about calling out injustice so that people actually have lives changed and it might cost you yours. That's the commitment to righteous anger that John had and righteous trust that Jesus would do what he said. And it, caught, it only came because of his humility. That Jesus must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. So what does this look like for us practically? Well, it means we must love Jesus in private for real. Contemplative and quiet love of Jesus. Right? Micah says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. The only way you're going to do justice and love mercy in our city is by walking humbly with Jesus. The only way you're going to know whether you see something that is unjust or not is by walking closely with Jesus. Digging into his word. Right? This happens right in the middle of Psalm 119, which is this giant acrostic about the Bible. Right? This beautiful structure all about God's word. If we don't know God's word, we won't have righteous anger at injustice. We've got to spend time with Jesus. And then we've got to do love of neighbor for real in public. Care for vulnerable Advocate for the marginalized in our positions of influence. And radically give for restorative justice. We can actually do things to showcase the love of Jesus in this community. There are tons of ways that we can show up. Now, you can't show up in every place. Which is why... Both of these things, love of Jesus for real and love of neighbor for real, have to be for the kingdom and for the eyes of Jesus and not for the world. Because you can't speak to everything. You can't do everything. You have to be okay with people seeing your silence on a particular issue as being complicit. Because you can't speak to everything. You have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with not caring about your reputation, but caring about your character before Jesus in actually loving the vulnerable. You have to be okay with people building a narrative based on what they think about you. You have to be okay with people judging and misrepresenting you. I really hope that this church, that we're defined by two false accusations. One, that we preach a social gospel. And two, that we're judgmental, Bible-thumping fundamentalists. That means we're probably like Jesus. Right? Those would be unjust and untrue accusations. We believe the gospel has social implications and we are pursuing social justice. But we're not preaching a social gospel that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus as fully divine and fully man and actually dying on a cross to actually forgive you of your sins, a bodily resurrection, all those things, right? 
And we preach all those things not because we don't care about our neighbor. Right? But if we're doing the thing that Jesus wants us to do, we'll probably get accused of both of those things. And the only way we're going to do it is if we're okay with being accused of those things. Being insignificant and despised. How do we do that? Well, Psalm 119, uh, verse 94. Whoop, I don't have it in here. Psalm 119, 94 says, I am yours, rescue me. We belong to Jesus. That's how we do it. The only way we can care more about how our neighbor is doing than simply ourselves is by knowing that we belong to Jesus, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that his justice is eternal, his kingdom is forever, he is our savior, our master, our friend, our lover. He is the one to whom we look. He is the one we honor. He is the one we adore and worship. He must increase. We must decrease. Let's stand together and recite this psalm as we've been doing. Uh, the psalms are meant to be uh, read together as God's people. And so we're going to remember these truths by reciting them together. So stand if you're able and we'll walk through this together, read this together, just this little section. O Lord, you are righteous and your regulations are fair. Your laws are perfect and completely trustworthy. I am overwhelmed with indignation, for my enemies have disregarded your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. That is why I love them so much. I am insignificant and despised, but I don't forget your commandments. Your justice is eternal and your instructions are perfectly true. As pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. Your laws are always right. Help me to understand them so I may live. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, would you give us a righteous anger at injustice? And would you move us through lament to a righteous trust in your justice, which is eternal? And as we lament and trust in your justice, would you give us humility to know we are not able to bring the kingdom or justice. You are the only one who is able. Give us a sense of our own smallness and insignificance so that we would then rightly love our neighbor in pursuing righteous action in the face of injustice. Jesus, would you do all these things, we pray, for the glory of your great name. Amen.